0: You can turn there if you have a Bible. Most of the verses are gonna be on the screen, but it's still good to sort of learn to navigate a physical Bible. We're continuing our series through the book of 1 Samuel. Um, this, the book, the 1 Samuel focuses on three main people, the prophet Samuel, then Israel's first king Saul, and his failures, and then the anointing uh, of his successor, the Shepherd Boy, David, and David's Rise to Power. It's a really fascinating character study, has amazing lessons. I'm trying to cover about a chapter a week, but it's, it's very, very difficult because uh, a good chunk of my time is trying to figure out what to cut and what to not go into. They're really dense, rich chapters. Last week, we've kind of re-entered the series and we just crept into chapter 27 and we just looked at verse 1. So I'll be finishing with chapter 27 today. But just to review because verse 1 is so pivotal to the whole chapter, in that first verse of chapter 27, we read, David thought to himself, one of these days I'm going to be destroyed by the hand of Saul. So the best thing I can do is to escape to the land of the Philistines. And then Saul's going to give up searching for me anywhere in Israel, and I'll slip out of his hand. And we talked about how this is David, in a sense, giving up. He doesn't talk to God, doesn't talk to other people, he just says to himself, he whispers this lie that isn't actually true, but it's taken hold in his heart. And now we see him repeating the failures of not just Saul, but many of the previous leaders in Israel, which is he's doing what seems right in his own eye. He's doing his own calculus and saying, well, I think this is what I need to do. And that first verse alone revealed two really important truths. The first is that following God is not easy. Staying faithful to God's call is not easy. And weariness is really powerful. And what you see in verses two through 12 is where weariness takes David. And the details might be different because the names and the places are a little bit different, but there are some pretty universal patterns here of where um, weariness can kind of tempt us, the paths, the dark paths that weariness can lead us down. In verses two through 12, sorry, for, sorry two through six, driven by this weariness after years of being on the run from saul we see david fleeing to gath and pledging allegiance to the philistine king achish so the dark colored area there is um, region regions in uh, israel that were inhabited by the israelites and then you remember on the coastline were the philistines and in between there was this lowlands called the Shephelah, and so When we read David goes to Gath, that should kick in a few things. That should kick in, oh, he's left Israel. He's gone over into one of the main capital cities of the Philistines. Gath is also famous because that was the hometown of Goliath that David slew. And broadly speaking, symbolically, this land of Israel was meant to be a kingdom of priests to God. It was meant to be a kingdom of God on earth, a light to the other nations. And the Philistines in their culture represented the kingdoms of this world, kingdoms built around idolatry and where might makes right and um, violence and oppression and greed and all of kind of the vices turned up to an 11 out of 10. And so when David is leaving Israel, there is this movement where he is fleeing not just the land, but symbolically he's fleeing God. He's fleeing his own calling. God has not called him to run to the land of the Philistines. But David is doing it out of desperation. He's collapsing into self preservation. He doesn't see a future for him in Israel. Even though God has delivered him time and again, he's giving up and he's going into enemy territory. Verse 3 David and his men settled in Gath with King Achish. Each man had his family with him, David had his two wives. Um, notice David's weariness doesn't cause simply David to defect and to turn his back on God, David actually brings a whole group of people into Philistia with him. And again, symbolically, that speaks a lot to the dangers of the fact that, you know, when a leader is weary, when a leader, the decisions a leader make has an outsized effect on the community that they're a part of. And that's why it's really important for leaders to make sure they're cultivating a deep and sincere and rigorous walk with God holistically, because there's more at stake that we might realize. We as a leader might think, well, yeah, I'm I'm kind of I'm, I'm not doing this thing wholeheartedly. I'm kind of going through the motions, but you know, no one kind of sees it and it's fine. Things are, church is happening, Bible studies are running, but actually what is happening is we're drawing people, sometimes without their knowledge, into a away from God. Verse 4 when Saul sold uh, when Saul was told that David had fled to Gath he no longer searched for him. Now in verse 1 what was David's hope? He's taking action, what does he hope happens? What does David want to happen? Why is he fleeing to the Philistines? Yeah, and what is he hoping happens? if he leaves. Saul searching for... That Saul's going to stop searching. What does Saul do? He stops searching. In the short term, this has to feel like a huge win for David. I got what I wanted. My plan's working out. It's happened exactly as I thought it would happen. But in the first verse of the next chapter, you are going, and I'm going <laughs> to, we're both, we're both going to learn something really important. That we should never mistake God's delay in discipline with freedom from consequences. Because in the short term, it looks like David has gotten what he wants. But as one preacher said, the wages of sin is expensive. And the bill is coming due in David's life. But right now, there's the relief that he was looking for. In verses 5 to 7, David wants to set down roots. He pledges allegiance to the king of the Philistines. He's given Ziklag, which is a uh, southern town which borders uh, the area of Judah, which is one of the tribes. And throughout all of his running in the wilderness and most of these events, we don't hear any precise timeline being given. It's all conjecture. How long was he on the run from Saul? We're not sure. But we're actually told with remarkable specificity how long he stays here for. And it's 16 months. It's a year and four months. And that's the text's not so subtle way of saying, this wasn't like, whoopsie, I just went on a detour and found myself in the Philistines and I realized, oh, I'm not in the right place after like a week or two and then left. David was intending to build his life there. Now something happens, as we'll read the next chapter, that precipitates a change. But this is David saying, I'm going to leave. Life under the rule and reign of God is, is too taxing. I can't, I can't handle it. It's not great. But I do find relief under the rule and reign of King Achish, under the Philistines. There's going to be things I'm not going to participate in this culture. I kind of understand that. And, um, but this seems like a better choice for me. It seems like the only choice for me. In verses 8 to 12, we see how David spends those, uh, those 16 months. David and his men went up and raided the Gershites, the uh, Gerizites, the Amalekites. From ancient times, these people had lived in the land extending from Shur to Egypt. And whenever David attacked an area, he did not leave a man or woman alive. He took sheep, cattle, donkeys, camels, clothes, and then he returned to Akish. And Akish would say, oh, where did you go raiding today? And David would say, against the Negev of Judah, against the Negev of Jeremiel, or against the Negev of the Kenites. So again, this is where the, the language can trip us up. David is raiding and killing tribes that were connected to the Philistines. But when he's going back to Achish and Achish and he has all these spoils and Achish is like, whoa, dude, where'd you get all this stuff? It's amazing. He's like, oh, I was actually raiding some of the people in Judah. I was fighting the Israelites for you. So David is deceiving Achish here. In verse 11, the text says, he did not leave a man or woman alive. Now, wait a second. That was, verse nine says, he did not leave a man or woman alive. Verse 11 says, He did not leave a man or woman alive. Whenever the Hebrew scriptures repeat something, what does it mean? When you repeat a detail like that, what does it mean? It's important. Take note of it. Don't skip it over. He did not leave a man or woman alive, verse 11, to be brought to Gath because he thought, well, they're going to inform, they're going to they're snitch on me, right? If I'm actually killing people who are friendly to the Philistines and even one gets back to the king and says David's been lying to you he's actually not fighting Israel he's fighting he's undermining your kingdom so David for the sake of secrecy ends up killing everybody associated with these tribes and such was his practice as long as he lived in Philistine territory so 16 months this is his lifestyle with all these Men and women and their families, and then the king of Achish trusted David, and the king said to himself, "Oh, he's become so obnoxious to his people. Israelites must hate this guy. He was supposed to be their future king, and now he's like killing them. Man, this guy is going to be my servant for life." Now this is where the story gets a little complicated. Because we learn that David has been attacking the Gershites and the Gizzites and the Amalekites. The Amalekites are known to us, the other tribes not so much, but they're all raiding, malicious, violent um, tribes that made their life uh, and living off of uh, murder and plunder. These were the traditional enemies of Israel and so it's led some people to wonder, well, is this sort of like a bright spot in David's heart or his disposition because yeah he's living in the land of the Philistines but he's also undermining them and he's still helping Israel even though he doesn't seem to be seeking God at all and it's interesting as you read different commentators some people squint really really hard to try and see what's being described in these last few verses as something positive positive. But again, in verse 9 and 11, what the text emphasizes is that he left neither man nor woman alive. And there's really, I don't think, a good cause here to try and spin that as something positive. Primarily because even if these were the traditional enemies of Israel, God has not told David to do this. God has not given him authority to kill. God has not sent him into Philistia. This is all David saying, well, you know, maybe has a, a, a prick of his conscience. I know I'm not living the way that I should, but I'm still gonna sort of, I love my people. I don't want this kingdom of Philistia to become too powerful. David is not faithfully walking with God during this period. He's still doing what seems right in his own eye. And so the best faith framing you can say of this chapter in David's life is he's deeply conflicted He's in a very desperate situation and he's just doing what he needs to do to survive. That's the best framing. The worst is David has actually chosen to go down a path of dishonor and cowardice. And at some point in those early months, he becomes little more than an armed robber, a murderer, and a deceiver. David is literally, um, maybe it made sense from his worldview, but he's literally living around the values of steal, kill, destroy. Here's some pastoral reflections from this text, and I'm gonna dovetail with last week. Weariness is powerful. Weariness is really, really powerful because it can invite us into some very dark places that if we were in a better space, we would never entertain going, never entertain doing. Things we'd never entertain saying, But after years of weariness, those same dark paths can look kind of reasonable sometimes, maybe even preferable. Because what weariness does is it actually amplifies temptation. We're all tempted in ways big and small, probably every day. But when we're weary, it just feels like those temptations are surround sound. 8K high definition and they amplify our temptation to forsake God, to forsake the calling God has in your life, to forsake God himself. In Christian theology, there's sort of three broad categories of the sources of temptation. The world, the flesh, and the devil. These, are, these were called long time ago by um, Thomas Aquinas, the chief enemies of the soul. All temptation can come back to one of those three things. The world, the flesh, and the devil. The world doesn't refer to creation because the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. But the world refers to cultures that exist and that operate in a state of indifference or opposition to God or his design. So it could be at like the societal level, but it could be the particular subculture of a sports team or a group or an industry so worldliness refl- refers to people trying to do life together and organize life together without any frame of reference to God or in opposition to God. The flesh doesn't refer to our bodies because again, our bodies are good, they're a gift, but it refers to those corrupt impulses, those compulsions that are about consumption, sexual immorality, disordered desires, where we are pulled to satisfy desires that don't honor God and that actually undermine our ability to bless and serve our neighbors. And the devil is that real personal enemy, and the way that he works is mysterious, but I think to David's story, where we see the devil at work is um, one of the titles that Jesus gives the devil is is the father of lies. And we know that there has been a very, very deep lie that has taken root in David's life, and that is the lie of verse 1. Eventually, Saul's going to get me. I might as well flee. Flee my people. Flee God, and just build a whole life over here. That's the lie that has taken root. And you actually see all three of these sources of temptation at work in David's life. You've got the lure of Philistia and their worldliness, right? I don't know about you, but I've been tempted in my life when following Jesus is hard, when it places certain demands on you, certain sacrifices of time, energy, money, attention, and you look at those who just live without any any reference to God at all. And I've been tempted to think, oh, that'd be such a nice way to live, <laughs> to not have to concern myself with growing and learning and humbling myself and giving and serving. I could just structure life around what, was, what worked for me. That's tempting. David is lured by that. His fleshly desire to compromise an honorable, godly standard And we see David giving in to this fleshly desire that says, you know what? Maybe I'm not going to commit to this forever, but for right now, I got to do what I need to do to get ahead. So if I need to steal, kill, and destroy, that's what I'm going to do. So that's a desire that comes up within him that he justifies. He doesn't take it to God. He doesn't repent of it. He doesn't confess it to God. He just simply, he baptizes it in a sense. He says, this is right for me right now. I'm not going to say no to these things because the present circumstances dictate that this is just what I need to do to survive. And again, all of this comes out of this devil's lie that had taken root in his heart. And again, this is why it's so important to guard against weariness. Everybody in this room, and I say this as someone who hasn't done a good job for much of my life, because weariness opened the door for not just one, but all three of these sources to really lock in and, and dig their claws in. And once that happened, it seemed more than reasonable to David that he should flee to Philistia, start a new life, abandon his calling, abandon his God. So we talked about ways that you can guard against weariness last week. If you weren't here, please go and re-listen to that message and put, start to put some of those things into place in your life. The second thing that I want us to notice um, is that even the anointed f- flee from God. David is anointed by God. He's had amazing experiences of God. He's slayed giants. God has delivered him time and again, all the way from when he was a shepherd boy to when he was in the wilderness. He's had deep, intimate connections with God. And yet he still found himself at a place in his life saying, I think I'll just walk away from all this. So there's a real... Warning, but also encouragement that if you find yourself weary and tempted to go down a path that you think, I've never thought about going down a path like this before. What's going on? You're not the first. David's not the first to experience this. He won't be the last in scripture. Even people who walk with God in a powerful way have moments of deep doubt, resignation, are tempted to say, I don't know if I can do this anymore. I don't know if I want to live under the rule and reign of God anymore and the demands those place on me. I'd like the freedom that comes from just being able to do what seems right in my own eye. And maybe you're there this morning. Maybe you're, maybe you're even sitting here in church. And in your heart, I mean, you're here physically, right? But in your heart, you're already kind of halfway Philistia. You've already started negotiating, well, how do I make my exit gracefully? Maybe you've already set up a home there in your heart or in your mind. Your own little zigzag, where you're like, well, I'm kind of close to God. Like I'm on the border. I don't know, but this seems like a better spot for me to hang out in. And I think that's a danger that we want to be cognizant of because there are ways of fleeing from God that are really obvious, right? I mean, there's there's really stark and obvious ways to flee from God, right? We abandon ourselves to hedonism. We live with our finger, middle finger held up to God and saying, Nope, I'm done. I'm doing life my own way. I abandon myself to immorality. I shift into a consumption mode in the areas of money, sex, power. I begin organizing around how do I just get the most of those things? How do I maximize my own happiness? Or I move into aggressive unbelief where I'm not just like having doubts, but I'm inviting other people to join me. That, that's a crock. That's garbage. That's not true. Come over with me. Find freedom. Reject faith. Abandonment to doing what is right in your own eyes without fear of God or fear um, or concern for neighbor in mind. Th- those ways of fleeing God are kind of obvious. But there's a subtler way of fleeing from God. And I think that's kind of what we're seeing in part with David here. There's a subtler, quieter, and even a more religious way of fleeing from God. And it can look like coming to a place where you're like, yeah, I don't know the whole theology of Jesus like, I'm going to be a good person. I want to be a good person. I'm going to commit to being a good person. But I'm kind of going to kind of leave the religious Jesus worship stuff. God said, I don't know. I don't know if I need that. Isn't, isn't the point just to be a good person anyways? I'll be a good person. It can look like attending church, but not actually showing up wholeheartedly. Fleeing God can look like slowly and in a calculated way, isolating yourself from meaningful Christian friendships and connections. So sort of a slow fade into the background. Always busy want to come out to this haven't seen you on sunday what's happening here do you want to join a bible study do you want to go for a walk and talk can't sorry busy 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 and you're just isolating and pulling back you can go through the motions fleeing from god can look like showing up to church or bible study or youth group and you're going through the motions you can say the right things you're clever enough to do that but there's no intent to turn from sin there's no intent to walk with christ there's no intent to seriously seek God outside of those contexts. So you put in a mask and you play a role and maybe even say to yourself, it's not totally a lie because like there's a part of me that still wants to play nice. And I want to have a you know, toe still in Israel, still in the kingdom of God. Now obviously, whether you flee from God in a way that's stark and obvious or very subtle, both are dangerous, but the second is kind of particularly dangerous, right? And I think we can see why, because it nurtures a hypocrisy. And it's harder to catch. You know, I'll, uh, you know let, let the reader understand, but Martin Luther, when he was counseled, you know, h- how do you prevent yourself from this slow slide into sin? He said, well, my, the best advice I can give you is if you're going to sin, sin boldly. That was his advice. You know, I'll I'll let that sit with you and you think through why that would be the counsel. Sometimes we can act in a way that we're doing just enough good, right? Like I wonder if that second movement, the reason why I wonder if David's doing the second movement of that subtle, I mean, there's an obvious geographic, he's moving away from God, but he's also fighting the enemies of God. He's still trying to help his people. And maybe that was part of how he used that's the the justification that he used. Right? Yes, I'm making out an existence. I'm pretty much doing it through lies and deceits and murder and theft and violence. But at least I'm doing all those things against the enemies of God. I'm still helping Israel, my people. That has to count for something, right? Yeah, I mean, I'm stealing and extorting from my workplace, but I'm donating it to missions in the church. So that's like not ideal, but so I don't know who's running from God this morning. And maybe it's not in totality. Maybe it's just in a certain area of your life where you said, I don't know if I want to submit to your Lordship, Jesus, in this area. In the other areas, no problem. But in this area of money or sex or power, mm, not really. I'll call the shots. But I know that on any given Sunday, the temptation is there. And I don't know what's pushing you away from God or what's pulling you towards a way of life that you know is destructive, that you know is dishonoring to God, dishonoring to Christ. And I don't know what what it looks like for you to be doing just enough that you're sort of justifying a hypocritical life, acting the part at church or small group or youth group or among Christian friends. But... I've gone down that road at different points in my life. So I kind of know how easy it is to hide it in some ways. And if that's you this morning, then I want you to know that the direction that you're heading is the wrong way. Like It really is the the wrong way. It's destructive. And I want to call you to repent. And that word repent means to turn around. It literally means to be going down a certain path. And then you realize, oh, the path that I'm on isn't right. It's not God's path. I'm going to turn and go down God's path. It's a U-turn. It's not just feeling bad. Oh, shucks, I really shouldn't be making my life from stealing and killing and destroying. It's saying that's wrong and I commit to a life of honoring God and blessing people. You may be tired of God's calling on your life. I've been there too. You may be hurt by maybe someone within the church, right? Like think about why... David's fleeing Israel because one leader in Israel has made his life miserable. The king, who was supposed to be an image bearer of a gracious, loving, caring rule, was out to kill him. He was facing abuse and mistreatment constantly. And maybe you feel pushed out of faith because of that, because of someone close to you, because of someone in a previous church context, or God forbid this church, and I've been there too. Maybe you feel betrayed and broken and sick of your circumstances that you're in and it doesn't honestly feel like there's any light at the end of the tunnel. But I want you to understand, and this is a lesson I am learning, is that the fastest way out of the weariness and the pain is through it with God. The fastest way out of the weariness and the pain is to go through it with God. It's going to be tempting to think if I just walk away from God and do things my way, then I'll be able to get relief and escape it. And in the short term, like in chapter 27, it might feel like you do. But again, the wages of sin is expensive and for David, the bill is coming due and the bill will come for you and I too. So in whatever area, if there is an area where you're running from God, this is a day to just stop and say, "This this is really stupid. I'm running from the source of life. I'm running from my refuge and help. And I'm not saying turning to God will make things easy and magically fix everything. It won't. But the fastest way through the pain is still to go through, through it with God. It's not too late to turn back. Jesus once used a story of a son who turned his back on his father and his calling to teach us about God. And after following the path laid out by the world and the flesh and the devil, the son said, what am I doing? He comes to his senses and realizes, maybe if I go back to my dad, he'll at least hire me on as a servant or a slave. But when the son returns, the father was scanning the horizon, hoping he'd come home. And he ran to the son and he celebrated his return. And that's good news for those of us who find ourselves moving towards or even in Philistia. It's never too late to turn back and return to God. If you turn around and return to him, he's ready to receive you with open arms. I'm going to pray then I'm going to invite you to stay seated and reflect or sing quietly this next song, which I think speaks to this call to return to God. So let me pray and then I'll invite AJ to play the final song.